0: Restoring Darkness is brought to you by Evluma, illuminating the pursuit
1: of dark skies. Welcome back to the Restoring Darkness podcast. Today, I'm quite honored again to be joined by John Barentine. Uh, We had a show uh, earlier in the month or last month, and we just started, I felt like we had just begun our conversation. And so I wanted to just go deeper into the technical side of lighting with John who is the principal consultant at Dark Sky Consulting LLC and was formerly the Director of Public Policy for the International Dark Sky Association. Uh, He has a PhD in astronomy from the University of Texas at Austin and previously held staff positions at the National Solar Observatory, Apache Point Observatory and the Sloan Digital Sky Survey. Throughout his career he's been involved in education and outreach efforts to help increase the public understanding of science. He is a member of the American Astronomical Society and the International Astronomical Union and is a fellow of the Royal Astronomical Society. The asteroid 14505 Barentine is named in his honor. Uh, His interests outside of astronomy and light pollution research include history, art, architecture, politics, law, and current events. You can find John on Twitter at, at John Barentine. On Mastodon at, at John Barentine at astrodon.social. He's got a website, darkskyconsulting.com. And we're going to welcome to the show in a minute. But first, I want to tell you a little bit about the Lighting and Darkness Foundation. Lighting and Darkness Foundation is, was created by over 70 lighting distributors and 25 lighting manufacturers as a way to join the fight against light pollution. And so we are from the lighting industry, and we believe that the lighting industry is the only industry that can solve the light pollution problem. And so we're going to be advocating for that. We do work on the ground, um, and we help people with the compromises and the technical facets of Responsible Outdoor Light at Night, or the ROLL-ON acronym. Uh, You can donate to us by going to restoringdarkness.com. Click the donate link. And if you're listening to this and you have a light trespass problem or a light pollution problem, we uh, are happy to review the situation and provide you with our thoughts and our help and technical expertise. Because we believe that with the dawning of LED, that light pollution has gotten a lot worse simply because most outdoor lighting projects do not have lighting design incorporated into them. And so you can go to restoringdarkness.com and contact us through there and and you can also join the National Association of Innovative Lending Distributors if you're a lending distributor or lighting manufacturer and get involved in that manner as well um, but for right now I'm happy to join by John Barentine hello John
0: Hi Michael well, thanks for having me back on the podcast
1: no I you know I felt like we had more to unpack um, let's go uh, into a little bit of your background Ooh. You know, dark sky, night preservation, restoring darkness—all these terms. Why, for you personally, is this movement important?
0: The reason that this movement is important to me personally is that astronomy is at the core of my being. Is the best way that I can describe it. Um, it that emerged early in my life as something that was um significant as a personal interest as eventually as time got went by i started to connect that up with um the the need for more science literacy in society in general thinking about the fact that we confront some very big problems that are even bigger than light pollution and i think that the best way to confront those problems is by using science and reason Uh, and that may be the only way that we solve those problems Um, adjunct to that is a, a a fascination with the night with the experience of seeing a dark night sky and how transformational that can be in people and so as i like to put it my life's mission is to help people experience that and we have to start by ensuring that as Preserved for the benefit of future generations. And that's what gets me up and out of bed every morning, to be perfectly honest.
1: You know, I think I, I agree with you that the solutions to our problems, whatever they be, involve rationale, study, um, product testing, um, you know, uh, engineering and deployment. And so it starts with, um, you know, good design, good information from our, you know, uh, you know, Pacific Northwest National Laboratories jumps to mind as a uh, organization that gives really good information to the lighting industry. And, you know, it starts with that. And then we, we get into product design and then educating the industry and through deployment. And on this issue, I see um, a dropped ball. I think we made a lot of progress towards um, night preservation, dark skies from, say, 1990 to about 2010. And then there was a bulldozer called lumens per watt that came along in the form of LED. And everything was thrown on that altar. And now we see the result of maybe the too much of one kind of science being emphasized at the expense of others, how do we find that balance in the information as, as people that are downstream from the scientists? How do we find that balance of who's right, who's wrong and what we should do?
0: Well, Michael, it's right to say that there is a, there's a translation that takes place between the scientific and technological development and the practical implementation of that technology and that comes in the form of policymaking. Um, oftentimes the people who are tasked with making the decisions that really govern the implementation of these technologies do not understand what they're dealing with. We are seeing that playing out right now in realms like artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. Uh, the people who are going mm-hmm. to decide how that impacts our lives are people not faulting them, but they, they just do not have the background at a depth to really understand what it is they're regulating. And I think that's kind of what happened with light in the period of time that you mentioned in about the last decade a little plus, uh, that something shiny entered the field of view and it looked like it had this tremendous promise and we're going to take care of the problem and declare victory and call it a day. Um, and, and yes, indeed, I think the world became enthralled with this notion of lumens per watt or, or what they call luminous efficacy and this notion that we could make lighting very green because it would consume so little electricity. The problem is um, that also caused the price of the technology to drop substantially, uh, not only the, co- the cost of ownership with the equipment, but the electricity needed to operate it. Um, that cost just plunged. And at least in the West, we have a tendency to use more of a resource when it becomes more affordable to us. We don't use less of it. And as far as anybody can tell, we have limited data on this, but it's suggestive that it's possible that the environmental benefits of LED were really wiped out by the tendency of people to put lighting in places that it didn't exist previously. And that there might well be more electricity consumption outdoor lighting now than there was Mm. in 2010 Mm
1: -hmm.
0: even given the the order of magnitude improvement in luminous efficacy simply because Mm -hmm. the demand for light increased along with that Um, it's the the it's a tale as old as time it's humans rush to adopt technology that they really don't understand that looks like it has limitless potential it has no downside as far as Mm. they can tell Mm-hmm. And what lawmaker is going to get in the way of that? Uh, I think mm. that's what got us to where we are now.
1: You know, and, and just to, I could, the, you know, Nailed has done a bunch of reports on on this that are all internal because they're extremely damning of other players in the lighting industry in terms of who's responsible for what and why it happened. And one of the major players in that is like this incentive that was granted for more higher watts, the more the incentive. And so generally what you found across North America was that the more light output you got from a light fixture, the more money the utility was willing to pay you for it. And so you ended up in a perverse situation where people would remove a 400 watt metal halide and replace it with a 180 watt LED or a 220 watt LED instead of a hundred watt LED or an 80 watt or even looking at the design and seeing if it was a correct lighting design or a good lighting design they just one for one to everything at the highest wattage the rebate would pay for um and so this kind of landed us in a in Javon's paradox squarely right in there and then on top of that in the past you know when you would run studies a 400 watt metal halide, a 70 watt HPS, or whatever, somewhere between 92 and 98 percent of the cost of that product was in the energy consumption that it cost to use it, and three or four percent was in the actual purchasing. That still stands with LEDs simply because they last longer. But the problem, another problem we have, and maybe you can comment on this technically, is that people seem to the the usage of energy by HID light sources was so high that it was hard to have the electrical infrastructure to create light pollution. But what LEDs did by being so low wattage is they allowed people to put so many light fixtures on a 15 amp circuit or a 20 amp circuit, whereas they would have to upgrade their service panel to create the amount of light, that that kind of light with, with metal halide. And so we find ourselves in a trap where that I I, I don't know what the best way to get out of it is, John.
0: You know, Michael, the only thing that might get us out of this is that it seems like solid state lighting around the world is gradually reaching a maximum penetration and even possible market saturation. I've seen some industry forecasts that say sometime in the 2030s that the market for SSL is going to peak, and then it's going to start to turn, and that has to do with the longevity of the devices in the field. Um, Of course, we can also talk about how uh, it seems that the industry has not quite been able to make good on the promises of the extreme longevity as we're finding LED products that are failing in the field after 10 years, 12 years, something like that but let's say that the typical product has a, an expected lifetime of 20 or 25 years. You just get to the point that you, there's nothing left to retrofit. Uh, and now you're waiting for things to fail um, at the end of life before you replace them. Something is going to come along that will displace LED eventually. I don't know what that is. That's just the history of lighting. uh led could have a a long run hid lighting has had a long run uh but there was nothing technologically preventing it from being displaced and i imagine eventually it it will be something i like to think that maybe without getting rid of what we have and we don't need to go to that extent that uh the mainly what we have to look forward to in terms of reducing light pollution is going to be more on the control side I mean, even the U.S. Department of Energy seems to be walking away from further investment in SSL because they think they've, they have uh, wrung as much water out of that stone as they can get. Mm. So uh, it's not so much how do we get out of this, but what can we bring to bear with controls and other approaches to better modulate the lighting that we already have out there as we wait around to see what might eventually become the dominant technology in the future.
1: You know, um, I think we're way ahead on that. Just from the lighting industry perspective, I know that, you you know, you, you have more of an astronomy background, you deal with lighting, obviously, but in the trenches here, right on the front lines, we're already in that place. And I would say the 10, 12 years is uh, lasting of an LED is uh, not realistic. I would say that you're in the four to seven years is the typical lifespan of, a, of an LED fixture, um, which is probably catastrophic. So we have to pull that date back a little bit. Now, that's just my own anecdotal experience, but I sell thousands and thousands of light fixtures and I've done it for 25 years and I've sold a lot of uh, LED lights. And I know that a lot of the flat panels are going yellow in the middle and falling apart and you can't fix them. And there's lots of problems out there. But all that being said, um, on terms of when we fix the problem or how the problem gets fixed, or if it's an introduction of a new technology or, or whatever, I think we have to solve our, the communication approach with the lighting industry. The, the lighting industry in and of itself, I think, is in denial of the light pollution issue. And, you know, you're coming from the astronomy perspective. It's obvious to you. I just interviewed Dr. Jeremy Treglone-Reed. And you see another industry there that's going headlong, full speed, from 5,000 low-Earth orbit satellites to f- 500,000. In five years, what could possibly go wrong, John Berentine? You know, and it's just there's lessons from the lighting industry here. Um, I think we need to convince the our industry to take responsibility for the light pollution issue. And I'm not talking about, you know, um, just training and education and awareness creation. I'm talking about the lighting industry raising its hand and saying, you know, we screwed this up. We could have done better. And here's what we did wrong. And here's what we're not going to do wrong in the future. Do you think that's the right place to start for us?
0: Well, Michael, I I agree and have believed for a long time that the industry is indispensable in solving the problem of light pollution. Uh, I'm glad that you talked to Jeremy about the satellite issue uh, as a separate matter because there's a tremendous lesson learned from ground-based light pollution that we're now wrestling with in the world of the use of of low earth orbit space and that is it is inevitable that we will have to deal with the industry that's exploiting that resource Mm -hmm. we can't just go put our heads in the sand and and you know wait for somebody else to come in and do something about it we have to actively work with that industry um i don't know if the industry is necessarily going to take responsibility for how things have gone with light pollution on the ground or the LED rollout or any of those things. And I don't think it's necessarily useful to assign blame, but more like, let's look ahead to the future. Uh, and, And I've told people for a long time that I think that the industry has a lot to gain by being more proactive on that front. It does not mean that they will sell any less product. Some of the skepticism that I I got when I was working for the Dark Sky Association when I talked to industry people was uh, an improper belief that our goal was to turn the world's lights off, and that we wanted to get lighting out of the world, which was never true. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to try to get across this idea that you won't sell any less lighting, you'll just be selling different lighting, and you'll have to be a little bit more mindful and deliberate about how you do it. But there's no less profit potential in that than. Your current model, and in fact, there might be more in some respects. Uh, It's just hard to get people to change when you've had a model that has worked for so many decades. Um, To get people to think differently uh, about this is difficult, and we're we've slowly started to see that happen. Um, You know, I I can't hardly go to a trade show now, and the lighting that you see for outdoor applications, it's it's pretty much all fully shielded. Nobody's doing stuff that's not, I mean, that's the influence of the dark sky movement. And also the manufacturers coming to realize that it just makes good business sense. If it didn't, they wouldn't be out there selling products like that. There's probably still too much of it. We're not making use of the controls that we already have. There Mm. are some efficiency gains left to be made. Um, but I don't think anybody in the industry should fear this movement or prioritizing darkness where we can reasonably retain it uh, because I just don't think that it threatens our business model.
1: I think it represents the single biggest opportunity for the lighting industry. So I, I would take what you said and, and go even further um, simply because uh, it brings back all the fixtures recently installed into a possible play again for new um, lighting design like you could have a urban you like this movement um, when we started the restoring um starving for darkness podcast it was originally called when we started it John um we had I think six news stories a month um that were related because we scanned the news across the entire English language internet for dark sky uh, night preservation all these different things and now we do bi-weekly darkness news updates. There's so much news about it. It's really gaining momentum and it's becoming a real issue. You mentioned controls and there's a couple other things I want to talk about um, after controls, but you see a lot of work from the DOE and PNNL and these different groups on interior lighting controls. And I have, you know, I mean, in the new construction environment, yes, I can see it. In retrofit, that's gonna be tough to make a business case for those particular controls. And most of our buildings are already built. So, but when I look at outdoor lighting, I just spoke to someone from the Autobahn Society last week, Jin Bai, what is it Bai Jin? What was his name? Chinese name, Bai Jin, Jin Bai. Anyway, he was telling me about these apps they have on the internet that track bird migrations across the United States and different kinds of animal migrations and how wonderful it would it be. That's just one little beautiful business case for lighting controls outside, let, let alone testing crime reduction, homelessness, vagrancy, all these other things that you could run using lighting controls on the outdoor that have nothing that are partially energy efficiency, but really information gathering, which is the golden egg of the lighting controls, right? And the fact that the industry is focused on the inside lighting as opposed to the outside lighting i think is a major error i think there's a huge business case to be made for municipal lighting controls on outdoor street lighting would you agree with that assessment and what work have you seen in, the, in regard to that is there any developments that you can share with the listeners
0: well i mean any industry is going to go where the business is so if they're spending more of their effort on interior lighting than There must be some belief that that's where uh, the growth potential is. Um, There probably is some perception that the outdoor world, which consists predominantly of uh, publicly owned lighting, um, roadway lighting in particular, that at least here in the United States, that market is close to saturation. There are not a lot of big customers left that haven't already converted their lighting to LED. So if you don't perceive that there's a big market, I can see why that's Hmm. not where the investment Hmm. of energy would be. Um, That may be true as far as the degree to which the retrofits have already been done. But as we were just talking about, if they are not going to reach the 20 year lifespan uh, or longer that no um, way (laughs) that the the industry held out initially and a lot of municipalities believed that they were getting when they made the uh, equipment investment then that means that sometime later in this decade we are looking at a wave of replacements that are coming and some of that is first generation stuff that uh the cities will be looking to get something better and they just know that they're going to be on a you know 10 year replacement cycle or something like that and yes you're right the information collection capacity bringing the internet of things and and that that kind of technology to outdoor lighting uh, has long been held up as uh, that's the future. Uh, that the, the the smart street light will do much more than just light the street. Uh, and I, th- I think there's still potential in that if the municipalities continue to see value in it. Uh, as far as development of controls, that's where things have sort of hit a wall, I think, because there's not a lot of new investment in that aspect. And in fact, mm. I understand that the Department of Energy program that was funding uh, lighting controls research at places like PNNL, um, they kind of wound that down recently. Mm. And um, I think it would be in the nation's interest for them to restore funding to that research. Uh, You know, we're just beginning to see things like so-called just in time lighting sensors and technology on luminaires uh, for roadway applications that, that can sense the approach of a vehicle or a person, you know, and they ramp mm. the light up and then back down after the the traffic passes. Um, we we didn't ever see that get pickup. It's out there right now. But, you know, could we add uh, intelligent timing to that? Could we even put AI on this? I wonder, you know, could we have networked lights that the network figures out what the optimal configuration is, mm. which would then save even more money on top of a, like a scheduled dimming program or something like that. That's the direction I wish we would head. But right now there's, there's just not enough market demand to do it privately. And it seems to think that there's no more energy savings to be gained from doing this. And they, they kind of walked away from the controls part as I understand. Um, but that seems to me like a mistake.
1: When I talked to them, what, I, what they found was that um, the controls were very fussy and difficult to configure and use, and the end user had a hard time with the interface and everything else. That was part of the problem as well. Um, I want to ask you uh, a, another question. So we, there's a, an axiomatic presupposition in our society that um, light reduces crime and that light increases safety and that the more the better and the whiter the better and the brighter the better and on and on right and we just have this sort of operational philosophy below our technical expertise which is saying that we always need to have light and that light reduces crime and light stops car accidents and all this sort of stuff Um, i'm unaware of any evidence that proves that and um, I know that there is, there is, you know, light affects different kinds of crime. So different kind of crimes happen in lit areas as opposed to unlit areas. And I'm not sure, you know, totally whether illuminated roads are always safer than unilluminated roads. I don't know if there's evidence to prove that. I think it's it's an assumption. Am I wrong in that? I don't think I've seen any serious studies outlining the these, uh, do they, do they actually study it? Am I missing something? Does lighting improve safety? Do we we know what the all the side effects are? Does it reduce safety in some cases? I know with crosswalks, they've designed bad crosswalks that actually increase. Um, uh, In the past, they've done things that blind drivers and stop them from seeing the people in the crosswalk. Um, What is our information on that that you're aware of? And, and do we need to do more research? I think
0: I get asked questions like that, Michael, more than any other, especially when I give public presentations and that sort of thing. It's the issue that really resonates with people. Uh, and I I believe that results from uh, there's an innate human fear of darkness that is part of our psychology. and And I never downplay that because people feel that fear very viscerally whereas they, they don't feel it under daytime conditions so much. Mm. Uh, but you, you're right about the evidence being lacking. Um, uh, a couple of years ago, I wrote a report for Dr. National called Artificial Light at Night, State of the Science, which um, people can find if they, they Google around. And we just updated it uh, this year for, uh, to include the latest research results. And there's a section in it on public safety and crime And on the crime issue specifically, the evidence is absolutely all over the map. There are studies that find a strong correlation. There are studies that find no correlation at all. Um, Many of them, I think, are not very well designed. Uh, They may be well-intended, but they don't account for other unconstrained variables in particular. So if they see an effect or don't see one, It's hard to tell with statistical significance if it's because of the lighting or if it's because of some other influence that they didn't take into account in the analysis. My feeling from looking over a lot of papers on this is that, uh, as with the traffic safety issue, it depends. It depends on a lot of local circumstances. There might be some instances where lighting has some sort of deterrent effect on crime under specific circumstances there certainly appear to be cases where it has exactly the opposite effect uh, and it might even encourage crime especially property theft in certain Mm. circumstances um you know if you give a thief light by which to operate at night at times of night when no one is around they will gladly make use of the resource you have given Mm. them Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so then we—that it comes back into controls. Like, you know, if we put those same security lights on motion sensors, would they have more of a, a, a deterrent effect? <laughs> sure Perhaps yeah. that's not been studied very well. The traffic oh, safety—that's another assumption.
1: Uh, that's another assumption that the sensors will it, make it, people it think someone's watching yeah. them. It's an assumption again. Yeah, yeah. We need more no, it's, it's
0: you, but you can turn that assumption into a hypothesis. Sure, and you can try to test that scientifically, mm-hmm. and and that. I think needs to be done Uh, on traffic safety it's similar we know that that lighting uh what what are called conflict zones where you have traffic coming together at intersections or you have you know vehicle traffic coming into contact with pedestrians and bicyclists that saves lives there's no doubt about that do we need to light every residential street probably not there is some evidence that at low speeds and low traffic densities, that headlights on vehicles do a much better job at showing drivers obstacles in roads than continuous overhead lighting does. Mm-hmm. We're looking increasingly at a future where vehicles will be autonomous, and they're not going to optical light to sense where those obstacles light and lidar and, and technologies like that. Um, you know, is there a future in which we will essentially not need uh, roadway lighting for many situations? Probably. That time is not yet, but I think it's going to get here. I, again, it's it's the interaction between the other things in the environment and lighting that if you're smart and careful about it, you can take advantages of those opportunities. Um but we also, at the same time, have to deal with the fact that people will just feel safer if the nighttime environment is illuminated. And that is not going to go away no matter what technology enables.
1: Hmm. I read a study in France where they um, they gave the residents control over the outdoor lighting in an app. And they found that it was mostly dimmed. Um and that the lower level of light was accepted by the residents and that the feeling of safety was mitigated by the fact that they could turn up the lights if they wanted to. Um and so I think there's a lot of work to be done in that in that field. Um, but we can improve for sure how much sky glow we create with our outdoor lighting, how much um how much glare we create. Like glare is a very serious issue with LED. Um, you know, in the past with the old sources you had like this And I'm going to use some untechnical terms, but it is what it is. There was almost like a mixing of the light on the reflector and then pushing it out. And so that mixing and the bouncing around of the lumens inside the reflector did create a softer glow and wasn't allowing it to project so far and so sharply away from the light fixture. Most outdoor um, pole lights and wall packs are made in a manner which creates extreme amounts of glare. And I have to ask myself when I'm, as a lighting professional, I'm driving down the highway, whether or not this glare is worse. And if these lights were shielded and there was less uniformity, would I be able to see better? And I am starting to think that I would be able to see better. And I would like to see, you know, if you, there's a dark sky patch, um, north of Toronto on the 404 here between highway, uh, the, highway seven and 16th Avenue. So if those listening, you can go check it out. Um, Basically it's an airport and so what they did was they couldn't put all the LED lights in because there was too much glare for the pilots. And so what's there instead is an accidental dark sky system that it's yellow and 3000k or less in color and all the light is pointed down on the highway and slides across the highway as opposed to being high and... And in the air. And I find that the most comfortable place to drive outside, John, when you're on a highway and the the, the, the light fixtures are actually quite low. They're in these movable kind of things. And they point right down the side of the highway and it shines out to the middle lane. And there's one on the other side. It's a three lane highway. You go hundred kilometers an hour or 70 miles per hour, whatever it is, 60 miles per hour. And it's actually quite comfortable and there's no glare. And I'm wondering to myself, you know, perhaps there is Less visual acuity when we, um, you know, use the the these type of flat bottom LED light fixtures with an array right on the bottom, orientated out onto the highway, where you can see the light source horizontally. You were never able to see a metal halide light source or a HPS light source unless you went right under it and looked up. You know, so I think that there's there is a um, there is something to that that technically has not come out of the research yet or something, there's a sharpness to that LED glare that I think is less safe. Would you agree with that? And is it, it's just a hunch of mine? And, and what do you think of that?
0: Well, Michael, we can certainly establish through uh, studies that glare as a general matter is probably harmful in most situations where public safety is concerned. Uh, it definitely decreases visual acuity. Uh, it causes discomfort, which can be distracting to a motorist, for example. Um, I, I don't, I, I don't think I've seen any evidence that directly links glare from any particular source with a measurable decrease in traffic safety. It's not, as far as we know, contributing to traffic accidents. Um, There are certainly cases where it probably does, I would imagine. I think we've all had that experience. And it reminds me of uh, several years ago, I I was curious to know exactly how bright in the surface brightness sense are LEDs. And I did a back of the envelope calculation with some manufacturer specs and found that a a typical 4000 Kelvin LED was something like 130th the surface brightness of the sun. And we've all had that experience where we're totally blinded (laughs) when the sun is at a low elevation. You know, you got the you got the sunshade down, but you're, you know, the sun's kind of peaking below it, and how much of a a problem that could be. Mm. And we're sort of replicating that. I think Mm. you are right that there, there was a tendency for the light to be a little bit more diffused in the old days when you had reflecting optics with HID sources, which you had to have in order to get anything resembling the distribution that you wanted. I think there is a great deal of potential in the directionality of LED, but everything was sacrificed on the altar of luminous efficacy, and we couldn't tolerate the slightest loss in the luminaire uh, from any kind of reflecting or diffusing surfaces, and we kind of got what we got. And and it reminds me of what an engineer told me once about uh, the glare associated with streetlights, he said, Anybody who stands underneath a streetlight and looks directly up into it gets what they deserve. Mm. Which is kind of a, maybe an extreme view of things. We don't, we don't want to encourage that. But the, the notion that there will be some spaces around luminaires where that's inevitable is true with any technology. But if you take a very directional light source like LED and your intent is to not only preserve the energy efficiency as much as you can but also to throw that light the greatest distance away from the luminaire, I think you're inevitably going to end up in this situation. And it's part of why LED has gotten a sort of a bad reputation in that regard. Uh, We can certainly do better. Um, We can tolerate a little bit of loss on the energy efficiency side in order to get a better result that produces less glare ultimately. Um, We're not yet there with the design uh unfortunately and and it also doesn't help the 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 shift to solid state lighting uh not a lot of attention was given to lumens not a lot of attention was given to color temperature and the effective perception of glare Uh, i think we can still work on those things too so in other words with the technology that we have right now and more careful design i think we could do a lot to reduce the impact of glare but customers have to ask for it
1: Hmm. Ain't that the truth? Um, product labeling. So w- we've seen that these, um, the product labeling industry. <laughs> uh, I just have to laugh about it because the lighting industry has a serious product labeling problem. There's so many product labels. Right, you have lighting facts, DLC, UL, CSA, ETL, Um, and now you have Dark Sky comes out with a product label. One of the things that about product labels that concerns me is that it allows, and this is what happened with LED. It it allows for unintended consequences. You know, what are you talking about? Um, My light system is Dark Sky approved. Right? Well, yeah, but you're, you're pointing it directly at your neighbor's property. No, no, look, ju- look, judge, it has the dark sky seal on it. You know, and so um, product labeling, I think, is seen as a panacea, as a solution to the problem. And I think product labeling without education to the lighting industry is just going to make more problems. What do you feel about that or how do you feel about that?
0: I largely agree with that, Michael. Um, there is a reliance on the part of people that really don't have a lot of technical knowledge about lighting. And kind of like earlier, I was talking about the policymakers who are regulating something they don't understand. And I don't fault people for not really knowing very much about it. Um, that sort of, I think a, a failure at some level on the part of, of us in the dark sky movement to better educate those people. We need to get in with the, you know, the urban planners and and people like that who are often tasked with making these decisions and they just don't have the lighting technical uh, knowledge to really do it very well. So uh, they rely on standards and labels and mm-hmm. really, I don't fault them for that. If they no, me neither, they they're doing, do, do, due, due, due diligence, right? They say I made an effort to try to find something that I thought was labeled appropriately. Uh, but of course, you can take a really excellent luminaire and turn it into a disaster by installing it wrong. Um, as a, a little anecdote related to that, uh, when I was still with Dark Sky International, um, you mentioned the Fixture Seal of Approval program, and you know I always have to remind people that no one owns the term "dark sky," so anybody could label any product to that that they wanted. It's not anybody's trademark, but. You know, we we were trying to do right by this and and get good standards in place for luminaire design. But what we then found out is that people were taking uh, these products and installing them uh, in ways that were not intended and defeating the design elements that were uh, part of what made them lower impact on the night sky. And even some of the manufacturers are getting around it they would take a really great fully shielded fixture and they would put it on a knuckle mount sure. so that somebody who wanted to throw light across the street would just sit there and tilt the luminaire at five or ten degrees and completely defeat the shielding so we added a layer to the uh the certification process that required um statements in the manufacturer's instructions that you know, the, the luminaire was to be installed in a certain way, they couldn't use knuckle mounts as an example, but that, that you, you had to, in order for it to be considered certified by the organization, it had to be installed in the way that the manufacturer instructed the end user. Um, so even the best of intent with that can go wrong, if the same people who don't have the, the technical knowledge, who are relying on the labeling to tell them that they're doing the right thing, then go out there and install it in some way that defeats those design advantages. Uh, and they don't know that they're they're doing that in the process. And they will turn around and say, well, but they're dark sky approved, right? So this has to be okay. I don't see that there's any way that we can get around the issue of education. Um, and that's both for consumers, the kind of people who go into a home improvement store and and pick lighting off the shelf and they know absolutely nothing about the subject, but that we also need to get in with the, the, uh, the transportation engineers, the urban planners, um, make this part of their formal education or their continuing education so that they receive this information. Mm. My experience is that when they do, they use it. They want to do the right thing and they become empowered when they have that information. Mm. Uh, but short of that, I think we'll still continue to be a society where we rely on that labeling to to do work for us at some level that we can't or aren't willing to do ourselves.
1: You know, I I um I think about what you're saying there about um you know the the lack of information and I, have you ever heard of the term extended producer responsibility EPR in the waste business? Right. So yes. so what 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 you see with it? like and I've been I've been in the waste lighting waste business for 15, 15 years and. Um, there's an over-reliance on EPR. They constantly want to charge the manufacturers. You know, well, who's, whose light bulb is this? Well, they made it, right? And so we're going to hold them responsible for this, right? And But they have no idea where the damn light bulb is. They sold it to a distributor who sold it to a contractor who installed it somewhere. They have no idea where the light bulbs are. Right? So they're paying and then these people run a program and they get, oh, we can only get to 20% or 30% or 15% recycling rates. Why? 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 Because nobody knows out there when they're throwing stuff in the garbage. You know, um, the garbage people don't know. The people in the waste business don't know the difference between an LED tube and a T8 tube and an HID. Nobody knows the difference between these things at the on the consumer end of the problem. And they're at the other end trying to talk to manufacturers about putting mercury labels on their bulbs or something like that, HG, right? On the bulb, like as if anyone knows what HG means, you know? And so, um, I think we have to get out of that mindset of, um, you know, we put a label on it, we'll charge the manufacturers, we'll, uh, make them fill out all this paperwork and we have to educate the lighting industry. So for example, you have the person at the town, they they see that it's dark sky, but also the person at the lighting distributor has taken dark sky training. The agency has taken dark sky training. The contractor has taken dark sky training. So when, when they're talking to these people about this, they're talking to people that know that this is an issue. They know that there are products that mitigate the issue and that these products have certain ways that they have to be installed in order to work properly. And so they're able to tell the client about this. And I think we've avoided that and avoided that and avoided that on this issue in the lighting industry. And I think part of it is because we kind of feel like, you know, what's her name? You know, Hamlet's wife or whatever you know, with the blood on the hands, wringing the hands through our sleep, like, oh my God, I put up so many of those lights, I don't even want to talk about this, right? And, uh, you know, part of it's that, part of it's just, you know, you know, there's new business to be had out there and we have to keep working and I've done too many online training programs already since COVID started. There's like a bunch of it. But I think we really have to push the lighting industry to do the training and to train its people. And, you know, John, every time I talk to you, I come up against the time, 45 minutes already. So... <laughs> I'm gonna to have to ask you like in the next six months or year or whatever to come back on again because I, I just I, I think we have so much to talk about. Um, do you have any final thoughts for the Restoring Darkness? We didn't even get to talk about what we said we were gonna talk about before the show even started, but we're up against time here. We don't want to take that much time from the Restoring Darkness listeners time. Give us some final thoughts for the people that heard this out.
0: Well, Michael, we we talked a lot about LED, we talked about product development, technology development, um, the responsible use of that lighting. You mentioned the the uh, responsible outdoor light at night uh, or Roland concept uh, initially. And, you know, I, I made a statement earlier to the effect of that um, I, I thought that for as much that uh, of the problems that there are that we confront, I think a lot of the technology we already have in hand could be it to better and more efficient use. We could get more good out of this with what we already have. We're not really waiting for a technological revolution in that regard. Um, and I do think we're going to continue to see the development of, of LED in a particular way. I hope it goes in a different direction um, than it has historically to date. But thinking about solid state lighting and its properties, there's a lot there that could save the world if it were deployed consistently and correctly right so not to impugn the technology i don't think that's what it is once again we need awareness everybody from the the voter to the consumer of lighting products to the manufacturer to the regulators uh, to make better use of what we have that way we wouldn't have to rely on something that hasn't come about yet to undo this problem that we're in. Uh, and maybe the relatively short lifetimes of these products compared to what was originally expected will be the thing that that pushes that ahead as people see that they're going to need to replace what they have far sooner than they originally anticipated. Um, and and again, it, it, if we're all in this together, if the, the rollout of the technology that continues and the activist community and the manufacturers and the policymakers, um, I really do feel like we could get a handle on this issue within our lifetime, perhaps within our generation. And if we did, what a win that would be for humanity at a time when we so desperately need a win. Um, This is low hanging fruit and all we have to do is reach up and grab it.
1: That's a message to the lighting industry. Let's all go get rich. John Parentine's got the, uh, he's got the formula right there. Um, nothing, you know, let's get educated, folks. And, you know, you can, the, the Lighting and Darkness Foundation, which was created by, like I said, over 70 lighting distributors and 25 lighting manufacturers is committed to doing this. And you can support us. You can support this podcast. Um, you go to um, restoringdarkness.com, click the donate link. And you can, you know, contribute towards the production of this show, uh, educational program that we're creating right now for the lighting industry. And also our advocacy work. That's right. We um, will travel to light trespass disputes and help the folks out there realize that with photometric design, we can demonstrate that light trespass is not a metaphor. Um, you can show, like you you can, you have every right to light up your property, but you haven't been given permission to light up your neighbor's property. And with the tools we have today, we can move lighting from nuisance law into trespass law. And unfortunately, that's where we have to go with LEDs because they're so powerful. So the Lighting and Darkness Foundation is there to do all that kind of thing. For uh, well, we get, we're, we're already kind of overwhelmed with requests. Actually, it's pretty ridiculous. We didn't, we haven't even told anybody yet, and we have seven cases already. So go to restoringdarkness.com, check us out, and thank you for listening to this podcast. All of John's social media will be available on the Restoring Darkness podcast website. Thank you for listening. Bye for now.
0: Look no further for dark sky friendly products than Evluma. Since its first product launch, Evluma has carried one or more International Dark Sky Association-certified models. If your customer cares about light pollution, suggest the Omnimax with shielding or the Ariamax with full cutoff to reduce uplight and glare. Evluma. Illuminating the pursuit of darkness.